Hoffman loses control of the puck and goes to the far board. Here's Gerald with a turnaround shot deflected to the backboard on the left side. Martin pokes it out in front. O'Shea, a shot and a goal! Welcome to A Shot and a Goal, part of the On the Air Podcast Network. Waiting. Kaminsky shoots, looking for a deflection there from Felix, didn't get one. Pizzamenti to Felix. To Ben Pizzamenti, who has a goal. Pizzamenti in front. A chance, and he scores! Kaminsky in overtime! As the Gens pour off the bench on their 50th shot of the game, Tyler Kaminsky gets his second. They go and mob him. That was the call of Tyler Kaminsky's overtime game winner for the Northeast Generals last Sunday against the New Jersey Titans, or Mass Titans. I don't really know what they're officially doing now, now that they're allowed to travel from state to state. That was my first ever overtime goal call in hockey. I've called a couple in soccer, a number of baseball walk-off wins, a game-tying buzzer beater in a basketball game between Amherst and Williams. That's a game I wish I could watch again. But this is my first call of this sort in hockey, and it's pretty special to me. I have five games in the next two weeks for the Generals, and with the return of NESCAC as well, I could have a fairly busy spring, which, really, it's about time. Also, I should mention that working a game alone after you've only worked with a partner every time you've been on the air since the pandemic hit is something I have to get used to again. Oh, I didn't do the intro. Welcome to A Shot and a Goal, episode 47. The podcast about hockey broadcasters, Jake Baskin here with you. The obvious news to touch on this week is the return of the NHL on ESPN. Now, I was born in 1996, but I did catch the last couple years of the run, as well as the 2004 World Cup of Hockey. Although hockey didn't become my absolute favorite sport until I was a teenager, and I didn't know I wanted to be a commentator until maybe age 9 or 10 when the NHL was on NBC, I think hockey was the first sport where the commentators really caught my interest. And before I discovered Hockey Night in Canada, around maybe 2007, the announcer I first thought, hey, this guy's really cool about, was Steve Levy. It seemed like every time I watched a game in those 03 playoffs that got me into the sport, he and Darren Pang were there. Everyone's talking about a potential Gary Thorne return that I'm not entirely convinced will happen. But hearing Levy call a full schedule again is more than enough for me to be really psyched for this. On to the guest today. Mike Murphy is the voice of the University of New Hampshire Wildcats men's hockey team. Mike is my first guest in the 47-episode history of this podcast, who attended the university most associated with sports broadcasting. That is Syracuse. He's been in the state of New Hampshire since the 1990s. He's called minor league baseball at the AA level and a variety of other college sports, football, basketball, and he's won the New Hampshire Sportscaster of the Year Award eight times. I can't believe I got robbed that one year I did high school sports in Keene. Anyway, this was a fun interview. We talked on the phone for a considerable amount of time after we finished recording. This is Mike Murphy from the University of New Hampshire on episode 47 of A Shot and a Goal. Hi, and welcome to episode 47 of A Shot and a Goal, part of the On the Air Podcast Network. My name is Jake Baskin, and with me today, I am completing the Division I men's hockey rounds in the state of New Hampshire from the UNH Wildcats, Mike Murphy. How's it going? Jake, it's an honor to be number 47, a prime number at its best, and to be the last New Hampshire broadcaster you speak to, the privilege is mine. 
Yes. So during the pause in sports, what did you do with your time? Did you pick up anything new? And how does it feel to be calling games again as much as the schedule in hockey is can fluctuate? The first part of the question, uh, during the pause, I didn't find something new. But thanks to a surprise gift first from my father and then from my wife, I picked up something old, which was APBA baseball, the board game. When I was a little kid and I first became a broadcaster in my bedroom, and it was the 1986 baseball season. My wife found somebody on eBay who had the cards, and I started playing board baseball from the 1986 season, which was my favorite season growing up and spent a lot of days rolling the dice, filling out baseball scorecards and kind of feeding the itch while there wasn't much more going on other than watching Netflix or the Michael Jordan series in ESPN. And the second part of your question, I have been thrilled. And every time I, whether I'm sitting alone in the arena with the, only a few other essential workers or the few times I've had to broadcast from my office, looking at a TV monitor, Every time I've been able to call a game, I've been grateful. How early did you know you wanted to be a sports broadcaster, and what made you want to? Eighth grade, I realized I wasn't going to make the major leagues. Um, I, I got cut from like Babe Ruth League. I, I realized I wasn't a very good athlete, and so headed towards high school, I started to say, geez, I guess I'm, I have to change what I want to do. And my father was the one who mentioned to me, you know, there are people who get paid to commentate at these games you watch. Baseball, basketball, the play-by-play announcer is sitting there getting paid to watch sports, and it became an obsession pretty quickly thereafter. And then I just started researching some of the people I saw on TV. Bob Costas was a big name at the time. He still is, but he was doing baseball on NBC. I noticed him. Marv Albert was doing games in New York, and I grew up an, outside, an hour outside New York City. And I started to see more often than not, a lot of people had gone to Syracuse University. So I decided from like ninth grade, 10th grade, uh, I wanted to go to Syracuse. I lived in Rochester, New York, about an hour from the campus. And sure enough, so many broadcasters went there. I, I went there, enjoyed my experience and have never lost the, the passion for it, even as my primary job changes throughout the years of my life. I have actually not yet interviewed a Syracuse graduate through 46 previous episodes of this podcast. I went and verified that about an hour ago. Obviously, the number of success stories that come out of Newhouse speaks for itself, but there aren't quite as many hockey announcers that go there as there are in other sports. I know you're not just a hockey announcer, but how did you get experience while you were there? I am interested, and how did hockey kind of jump up for you? Yeah, it was many, many years after my graduation from Syracuse, which was 1995, before I started doing hockey. Uh, at Syracuse, the experience started freshman year, trying out just to get a 90-second Saturday morning sportscast during the 6 a.m. hour. You know, being able to have on-air time was one of the great thrills to get selected. It was a very competitive radio station, WJPZ, Z89. It's it's more of a top 40 station, but there was sports, and I loved there. I, I did women's basketball play-by-play. As I got older, I did a weekend sports talk show, covered some high school football games, and then eventually was one of the morning show hosts. So doing, getting up at 5 in the morning to do 6 to 9 morning show, the crazy morning crew. The other radio station, the more prominent one with a big-name people, went um, – 
FM 88, WAER, that's from Mike Tarico and Marv Albert, Bob Costas. So you, that one, you have to kind of pay your dues to get on the air. So you'd have to go each week, you'd make a tape, and then somebody older than you would listen, critique how you wrote your script, what you said, and the next week you'd come back. And you had to get cleared to be on the air. Once I got cleared, I ended up leaving the station. I wanted to prove I could do it, but I didn't have the patience to wait to be a junior or senior or the other people who are more talented than me who did the men's basketball games on the radio. I wanted to keep doing the women's games, keep doing the talk shows. I liked the variety of what WJPZ and I, some of my long-lasting friends were from that job. The hockey job you know, came many years later, but the irony is when I was hired out of college, my first job was at a radio station in Concord, New Hampshire, WKXL. I had never been to New Hampshire in my life, despite living in Connecticut, which isn't all that far. But the man who was the general manager of the radio station, the man who hired me to move to New Hampshire with my bride, I just gotten, I graduated, got married, moved here. His name was Dick Osborne, and Dick was the voice of UNH Hockey. So he was telling me about his job as the voice of hockey. I said, wow, I didn't know there even was college hockey. I guess I realized that Lake Superior State existed, but only in the periphery. Uh, but the, it's almost ironic. The man who brought me to New Hampshire in the summer of 1995, I have the job that he held for a long, long time. So when you were at Syracuse, who were some of the future big names that you attended school with? Let's see. Um, Andrew Siciliano who's famous for the NFL red zone. He was a year younger than me. Uh, Dave Pash, who's a really famous ESPN play-by-play announcer, works with Bill Walton in basketball, does NFL games. He was there at the time. Um, Ryan Burr from the Golf Channel was there. My favorite is still Brian Gortz. Brian Gortz was the head writer for the WWE. I I realize that's venturing away from play-by-play announcers, but he was a good friend of mine. Everywhere I looked, there was somebody else who was better than I was and, and went on to more fame. But uh, so many other guys. It, it's just great to see, as the years have gone on, Jake, younger people who went to Syracuse after me. And we do have that one connection every time we come across each other at various sporting events. I have spent time and called games in New Hampshire, but on the other side of the state from where you are. Take me through how you started your association with UNH, you talked about Dick Osborne, but also the various roles that you've had there and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, good question. You know, people ask me about opportunities. I say being lucky has been the number one benefit of my career. So this radio station where my job initially out of college was wake up in the morning. I was used to doing it from doing it in college. And you get on the air, you read the sports, you work with the news anchor. And that was it. For many years, my hardest part of my job was simply waking up, and the rest of it was pretty fun. You go to a radio station, and back then, people had to listen to the radio station when there was a snow day. The only way to know whether there was school that morning is the guy on the radio, um, because he didn't ha- it didn't have apps or the phone call or whatever else. But the sports director at the radio station was a guy named Jim Janot, and Jim is the most legendary sportscaster in the history of New Hampshire. 23 times he's won the New Hampshire Sportscaster of the Year. And about three years in to my career at WKXL, his broadcast partner on Wildcat football had to stop broadcasting games. It was a newspaper reporter who got a promotion, could no longer travel around and broadcast. 
So Jim, knowing my aspirations, by this time I had been broadcasting high school basketball, doing a talk show on the station, but he asked if I'd be willing to join him as a color commentator. And I said, absolutely, of course. And so I had to learn the color commentary, which, as you know, is a lot different than play-by-play. But that was my foot in the door. And you know, from 1998 until 2010, he and I were broadcast partners. I added basketball to my repertoire because while Dick Osborne was the voice of hockey, Jim was the voice of football and basketball, and we traveled all over the place. I met people at UNH, got very close to them. I had worked in minor league baseball after my radio career at WKXL ended. But it was the summer of 2010 where I had an opportunity to to make the jump to work for UNH full-time. And the irony is, uh, or coincidence, is that I had to give up the on-air role in order to work in the media relations field, writing press releases, traveling with the football team, and being in charge of their PR. So I stopped broadcasting football at that point and kept doing basketball on the radio for another seven years with Jim. So he's still alive and well retired now from the broadcast side, but that's what really got me started working full-time at UNH. And now we're 11 years later, I am back in the broadcast mode. Is That's why you invited me here. I became the voice of UNH hockey in 2016. I had filled in for many games through the years as we got TV when our broadcaster, Dan Parkhurst, who took over for DeGosborn, when Dan would move to TV, I was able to slide into radio and then start picking up hockey. You know, I hadn't, I knew hockey. I was a fan of hockey, but man, broadcasting hockey is a challenge. It took me a long time to feel comfortable doing it, but UNH thankfully stuck by me, gave me more opportunities to a lot of women's games on the radio. And then when Dan moved along, cause he was, was no longer, you know, he wanted to no longer do the radio cause he lived pretty far away. So driving back and forth, was wearing on him. I got the position in 2016. Have since added TV to it with the contract Hockey East has with Nesson. So when UNH home games are on Nesson, I have an opportunity to do that, which is a whole new animal. And while hockey wasn't my first sport, it has become what I'm more known for, I think, on campus now. So you've touched on your TV radio split. During normal times, do you travel with the team? Yes. Absolutely. Yep. So I, I'm because I work at the university and in that PR media now marketing as well. I know the coaches and the staff very well. We're, we work closely together and everything. But traveling with the team was my way of getting to know the players, and I, I miss that immensely. Uh, you're on a trip. You're eating breakfast with everybody. You're going around morning skates. You're, you're eating the same food, you know, living and dying with the winds of losses. And it's been really a, a privilege to get to know the athletes, not only hockey. I mean, it, I'm, everything from gymnastics to skiing to the basketballs. I, I try to form a relationship with almost every athlete I possibly can because that's one of the real nice things about working in college. But as far as travel, I travel with football from non-broadcast position and then in hockey season – I've been doing home and road games since 2016 until this year where I can't travel with them. I do travel to places that allow visiting broadcasters to go. So I've been to UMass, Northeastern, Boston College, uh, other Merrimack College as well. Other times I've had to sit in my office and try to broadcast off a video stream, which is definitely challenging. 
I know one of my professors and the head of the radio station here has been remote broadcasting. He is the voice of the Providence College basketball team. So how has that been? I have not done it. I just did a couple of hockey games this weekend, and I was there in Attleboro at the ice rink. I really could not imagine calling a game off a monitor, even if that's what I did all throughout my childhood. I'll tell you, Jake, it's, it's been tough. You know, I, I tend, I think most broadcasters tend to be hard on ourselves anyway for our performance if it's not up to snuff. But what, what has been challenging for me, I keep using the word, is just player identification. I can't recognize players as easily, even my own team sometimes, because you're dependent on the camera angle or the, the Wi-Fi speed. And not every broadcast is HD quality. It's one thing if I'm watching a Nesson game which I was able to do a game of Providence on the screen. But some of these other schools, I'm not here to pick on anybody because we have our own deficiencies. It, it can be tough. Uh, some sports, I think, lend themselves to broadcasting off a monitor more than others. And I personally think hockey is the hardest to do it because of the speed of the game and, and, and watching the two-dimensional images versus a three-dimensional. All that being said, the people who like me, right, who like probably are familiar, you get texts, wow, it sounded like I was in the arena. I can't believe you guys weren't there. You know, Pete Webster, who's my broadcast partner and just a fantastic color analyst, uh, we have like the fake crowd noise in the background. So I think if you put the radio on and you're driving and didn't know, a lot of times we still are able to pull it off and make people think we're in the arena. We, we don't lie to them. We say where we are. But once the play begins, you describe it, as if you were sitting in the arena with the team. How much do you interact with the team, the players, the coaches, and this goes both for during normal times and now, and during normal times, do you attend practices at all? During normal times, I would go to practice, yes. Um, sometimes I have to ask the players to, to do some things for us, schedule interviews or newspapers or we're making a promotional video to try to sell tickets to the next game. So a lot of times it's me talking for, we have a podcast now that we do and I may say, Hey, let's hop on a zoom. I want to talk to you about your great game and let's put it on. So I spend a lot of time and the coaches I talk to the head coach, Mike Souza. I mean, Dickie really before him, a legend, still a close friend of mine, you know, but be, whether it's calls or mostly texts, we're in contact every single day, uh, even off season. You know, that, that's how close I am with them. The players, you know, alums, I'll, I'll stay in touch with on occasion, but the, I would see them a lot. Sometimes see them in the dining hall and sit down and have lunch with them just by coincidence, but it's different now. And you know, I, I don't know the freshmen. I see them play hockey and I read their bios, but I haven't had any face-to-face -face interaction. And so it's going to take a little bit of time to, to build the rapport that you would from being on the road, at practice, being seen from, the beginning of the year because normally we would do a preseason talk with the team about their media responsibilities and as somebody who's in charge of the communications department they meet me for the first time in that realm in fact there's probably some guys who don't even know i broadcast their games to be honest with you they know me as the guy who tells them the do's and don'ts about their media responsibilities but as we go along and they see me on trips and maybe they start to realize he's not just this or that he's he's doing something when he's up in the, the booth but i don't really go bragging to them hey i'm the voice did you hear my call of your goal last night it just eventually i think they tend to find out but i never ask them if they know why i'm with them
Your role, according to the website, is the Associate Athletic Director for Marketing and Communications. What does that consist of? Well, the marketing I just added at the end of January, uh, that's that's a new role for me. And how it looks in real times or normal times may even take away from some of my broadcast responsibilities. That remains to be seen. But in essence, it's in charge of everything we do from the website, unhwildcats.com, all of our print materials, media guides, programs, our advertising on radio, TV, certainly all of our broadcasts. So whether I'm the talent or hiring talent, I'm involved in that from the TV side, from the radio side, because we do football games on NBC Sports Boston. We do men's and women's basketball games on ESPN and then hockey, which is either on Nesson or College Sports Live, a subsidiary of CBS. So I'm in communication with Hockey East officials. The commissioner, Steve Metcalf, worked with me for many years at UNH, so I'm very close to him and Brian Smith who works on the media side. Uh, the CAA is our football conference. And you name it, I, I'm involved in a lot, so it's tough for me to really fully describe. But here's an example. Like we, UNH is going to have, as, as we talk on this date, this, this won't be um, hidden news anymore, but this week we're literally in discussions for a Friday night hockey game where we're going to, we being the university, have 500 students in attendance. This is a huge deal. The president of the university, the cabinet, the chief of UNH police, allowing students at an event. To the best of my knowledge, Jake, we're the first school, not only in Hockey East, but certainly in the Northeast, that's going to try this. Students are back on campus. Safety protocols will have to be met. There'll be specific areas that can sit, and it's only 500 students in the building that seats 6,500. But I've been working to get the messaging across so we can get students to know. What does the website look like? What does the press release look like? How do we get the president's comments ready? So a lot of that behind-the-scenes stuff takes up the hours of my day more so than simply doing the fun stuff, as I call it, preparing for a hockey broadcast that I could or could not be doing on Friday, depending on how the rest of my staff is available. You also worked a long time in minor league baseball with the New Hampshire Fisher Cats, so you didn't take a lot of time off. I know you have a family, so how busy did your schedule get in those years, and how do you balance your home and work lives? Yeah, well, my wife is a, an absolute hero for putting up with me during those years because baseball, that was a big break for me because I was a baseball fan first and foremost growing up. And so after being in that, that morning show and doing UNH radio with Jim Janot for all those years, as a side job, it was fun. But baseball changes everything. Once you start doing minor league baseball, you are busy every single day from the month of April through August up until Labor Day when the minor league season would end. And if you have playoffs, maybe another week or two after. So I was just broadcasting. Once I went to work there full time in 2006, then even when the off season goes on, you're still working. You're trying to sell baseball tickets. I'd be picking up the phone and making 80 to 90 phone calls, hoping somebody would buy tickets for games months later. So I enjoyed the, the radio. The rest of it, I, I learned media relations. So I got better at writing. I learned more about marketing as we're trying to sell tickets. So I built the skills that allowed me to move up in my career. But I wasn't getting much better at broadcasting because if we had a 7 o'clock game, chances are up until about 5, 5.30, I was finishing up my sales in the day 
getting the money all set, getting all my reports done. And my broadcast partner, a terrific broadcaster by the name of Bob Lippman, there'd be many nights where I'd be running up to the booth. The first inning would have started, and I would just then open up my scorebook and fill out everything. So he'd do the first two innings so I could just catch up. And then by the third, I'd take over and start the game. But that's a lot different than when you're on the road. When you're on the road, you could focus on that night's game, get to the ballpark at like 3 in the afternoon with the first bus, talk to the opposing broadcaster, go to the batting cage, and be ready when you started your broadcast. And you know this, James. There's nothing better than when you've done your prep and you have everything there as opposed to going in cold. It's a much different broadcast. Listeners can tell, and you're never quite comfortable. And that's what happened to me. Like I, I was realizing the baseball dream wasn't going to come true. I could not get better unless I focused simply on play-by-play. And I had an opportunity to move somewhere else in the league and do more radio. But at that point, with the family... I didn't feel comfortable uprooting to chase the dream of trying to go to the big leagues. So when the opportunity came to leave baseball and focus all my energy on the college life in 2010, my family was big in that because all of a sudden summertime became my off time. And I had two kids and I was able to spend more time with them. And it really helped my mental health from the the nonstop baseball season would end and all of a sudden you're jumping into football and then of course basketball. So if, it, if my whole life were broadcasting, it'd be a dream come true. But there were so many other aspects of it that it was the right move for me at that time, and I'm glad I did it. I love baseball. It was the first sport I called. I started following high school teams around. But I don't think I will end up pursuing it after college for the reason being that I despise hot weather. And given the contraction of many of these minor league baseball teams in the last year, I don't think there could be as many situations that would be favorable to me. Yeah, you bring up a good point. No matter where you work, it's going to be hot at some point. And some of these booths are more air conditioned than others. And, you know, the minor league baseball situation with everything else going on with the pandemic, I do worry about that as a, as an industry right now. Uh, I'm worried about, you know, I'm worried about college sports too, but minor league baseball in particular, I don't know how they come back from this, what it looks like at the end. And if the business model can sustain, especially with the way Major League Baseball, even without the pandemic, wants to run things from its perspective. And the other part, Jake, I have a hard time, and this might be more an indictment of me, although the more I read about it, I think I'm not alone. I have a hard time sitting down just to watch a Major League game, an important game, without being distracted and wanting to do something else. It doesn't capture my attention the way the other sports do anymore. And I think it's a problem for the sport. Uh, if I were broadcasting, maybe I'd feel differently about it. But it just seems it takes too long, the pace of play, and I, I don't doesn't keep my attention like a hockey game would. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I'm probably in a similar boat to you, but that's because I'm an Orioles fan and I've rarely seen my team be good. But you know, that's a different story. <laughs> you were named the New Hampshire Sportscaster of the Year for the eighth time in 2020. Are there any ceremonies that come with the award, and how is it selected for those who don't know? And also. How big of an honor is it that you've been judged to be the best sportscaster in the state so many times? Oh, it's definitely an honor. Uh, It doesn't get old. It's really cool to win, and when I don't win, I'm not happy. (laughs) But uh, it's voted on by the sportscasters and sports writers in the state. I don't know how many members there are, to be completely honest with you. And I have been to the uh, award ceremony before, and it is awesome. 
you know, you go down to, it used to be Salisbury, North Carolina. Now this will be my first time if it goes off without a hitch COVID wise, uh, it's in Winston Salem, North Carolina now. But first time I won this award was the late nineties. I didn't go when I won. I said, ah, oh, you know, I won the award. That's great. I'm not going to go. And I remember Jim Janot, who I told you won 23 times. So forget eight. That's nothing. He said, you really should have gone. It's an unbelievable experience. And so the next time I won was maybe 2003 or four. I went, my wife went, and it was remarkable. This entire town of Salisbury, North Carolina, adopted every state sportscaster and sports writer. There was a host family that would make sure you could mingle. You'd meet everybody else who does the same thing you do. And to hang out with a sports writer from West Virginia or a sportscaster from North Dakota. And then the, the national winners would take time with you in the Hall of Famers. So you meet Jim Nance or Joe Garagiola or Rick Riley from Sports Illustrated. Rebecca Lobo was there when her husband, Steve Russian, won. And you're being treated like you're the athlete. You're being treated like all the teams recover and, you know, food and drink and entertainment. It was a lot of fun. Uh, the organization in recent years has had to adapt. And Dave Gorin is the executive director. Now Dave is a good friend of mine, another Syracuse guy who does Wake Forest uh, sidelines for football broadcasts. So I've stayed in touch with him, even though I haven't won very frequently in the last few years. So I'm thrilled to get this honor. Never will take it for granted. And if COVID permits, I will be down there at the end of June to see what the, the new look format is. Because the old format, I, I have to admit, I'll miss because of the town. My wife made lifelong friends with people we would see when I was winning it a little more frequently in the early part of the century. The final question. You have managed to carve out a long career in your market without ever having to make a significant move. And you talked about your experience in minor league baseball a few questions ago. But are there any future goals for you or do you think you can keep doing what you've been doing for as long as they allow you to? Yeah, I think the future goal is growing within UNH. And so taking on my title was Associate AD of Communications. And in that role, I was able to broadcast the hockey games on TV and radio. And then I do football on TV color commentary and occasional basketball fill in play by play color. And I could keep doing that the rest of time. I guess I, I enjoy it. But there was this opportunity when we were reshuffling the deck to, to take on more of the marketing role and how does sports in college look in post COVID times. And, you know, I wanted to do something different. Do I want to stop broadcasting? No. But I've, as I told people when I was working with, I said, if my value is in greeting fans at the door, handing them pocket schedules and giving somebody ice cream cone who's going to come have a good time and keep coming back to our games, maybe I'll try that for a while. And if it includes only broadcasting on the road where I can spend the early part of the day talking to a counterpart and finding out what they do and just observing the fan centric ideas and then broadcast a game, which I love. I'm into that because I think the universities and the people I work with appreciate what I do on the air. Uh, I don't think I'm great. I think I benefit from a voice that people are familiar with now. And when people are familiar with you and Jake, you probably know this, they will tell you how great you are. No one ever tells you you stink. They'll tell other people you stink. <laughs> and to, to, to be tied into a particular school, a particular team, I don't necessarily want to jump up and work for, a bigger school. I don't want to, let's say a West coast hockey team at an opening 
and said, hey, we heard you. Do you want to move here? That's not my aspiration now. New Hampshire's my home. Broadcasting is great. I feel like it could still be there. But I'm looking to do something more. And if it keeps me on the air, great, because I believe there's a big marketing part of being the voice of a team. I can help the message that we put out there on Nesson. But if it means stepping away and trying something different, I'm okay with that right now. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's a unique spot when you get me that question, Jake, because this is brand new. If I go back and listen to this show a year from now, we'll see if I fall flat in my face when it comes to the marketing side. But I, I think I'm going to do well, uh, and I'm looking forward to that challenge. And hopefully I'm still calling games and known as the voice of the Wildcats because that's not a title I take for granted. I, I'm pretty proud of it. All right, Mike Murphy from the University of New Hampshire. Thank you for coming on, our second Hockey East guest, and spending this time on a Monday night. So have a great day. Jake, thanks for, uh, thanks for finding me. It's been a real pleasure. That was Mike Murphy, the voice of the New Hampshire Wildcats. Thanks to him for coming on. The pandemic has forced me to think about what I really want in my career, and I think I'm going to do whatever possible to try to stay in the Northeast United States. I've grown to like it here in Connecticut since I moved, and I'd like to stick around at least within a few hours. If that kills my NHL or NBA chances, so be it. But I think what Mike said here is important. He found a job in an area that he loved, and he has his family in New Hampshire, and he just didn't feel like leaving. You have to respect it. He's done well for himself. That'll do it for episode 47 of A Shot in a Goal. My Twitter account is JakeBaskinPXP. My Instagram is KinneticutJake. Four further episodes are already recorded. Next up, we have Alexis Pearson. She is the color commentator for the Minnesota Whitecaps and was analyzing games in the NWHL bubble. After that, Les Lazaruk, Andrew Smith, and Austin Ruck. See you next time.